0: This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular, personal, and/or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions.
1: Hello, and welcome to Critical Thinking Critical Issues. I'm David Morrow, the European Insurance Proposition Leader for Mercer. And joining me today is Tamsin Coleman and now Clifford. Uh, Tamsin, do you mind doing a quick intro, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So thanks, David. And great to be here. Uh, so my name is Tamsin Coleman, uh, and I'm a private debt specialist within Mercer's alternatives business. Uh, prior to joining the private debt team, I spent several years in our insurance solutions business, actually working alongside Niall, who's also on the podcast today. Uh, and prior to that, I worked as part of the CIO function of Aviva UK Life. You
2: know. Thanks, Tamsin. Uh Niall Clifford, pleasure to be with you all today. Uh, I'm an insurance actuary by background. I advise insurers on their investment strategy and capital and risk management challenges. So that's strategic all the way through to investment
1: implementation. Thanks, Niall. So let's get started. Uh, today's topic is private credit for insurance companies. Tamsin, it's been a remarkable year. Um, if you look back at where rates were Uh, At the start of the year, um, LIBOR negative, European government bonds, basically at zero. Um, Corporate bonds, you know, a a little bit more positive than that. Um, And things are are quite different nowadays. Um, We're talking three and a half percent for European government bonds. uh, Five to 10 year duration, we're talking kind of four and a half percent for european investment grade credit um tell us what's happened in the private credit market over the last nine months
0: yeah sure absolutely um so arguably i'm a little bit biased but i would say it's actually a very very attractive time to be investing in, in private credit as a whole uh, from a risk adjusted return perspective you know on the return side of things you, you're seeing the elevated returns coming through not only from the sort of higher base rates that you mentioned there uh, but also you're getting an additional pickup both on the spread side of things uh, and also through OID, so through higher arrangement fees. Uh, and if I had to put some figures to that, uh, if you were to take a loan within the senior direct lending space that would have maybe earned you 7% or 8% uh, back in, say, January 2022, uh, that's now pushing up against sort of 11 to 12% on a gross basis. Uh, so, you know, you're getting that additional 75 basis points on the spread Uh, You know, at the peak, that was looking more like 100 basis points. Um, You're getting an additional 1% or more on the arrangement fees. Uh, And then that's all on top of the rapid base rate rises that you sort of started off your your opener with. Uh, So, really, it's a very attractive uh, looking space um, compared to historical levels. Uh, And I'm sure you're probably thinking right now, well, that's all very well and good. Uh, But, you know, what about the risk side of the equation, given, you know, where we are and potentially looking down the barrel of a worsening macroeconomic? Uh, backdrop uh, and thus you know an elevated default environment. And you know I can say while we have started to see some of the default rates picking up uh, they're still well below historical levels uh, and I think one of the impacts from some of the slowdowns in the leverage loan and high yield markets over the year is that there has been that shortage of debt capital. Uh, so less capital competing for deals uh, leading to an increased cost of capital uh, and also better terms for lenders available through the documentation. But generally, things are looking you know quite positive from a risk perspective as well. Uh, debt to EBITDA levels falling. Uh, generally, a very attractive equity cushion, sort of sitting beneath you in the capital structure. Um, so you know, when you contextualize those increased returns that you know I was talking about at the start there, against that sort of risk backdrop, I think it's quite a compelling opportunity at the moment.
1: And niled in the last Mercer Insurance survey. Um, a very significant proportion of respondents indicated that they were planning to increase their investment in investment grade or uh, private debt, private credit. Um, could you please elaborate what you what are you seeing in the market vis-a-vis insurance companies investing in private credit?
2: Yeah, thanks for that, David. Um, I think first of all, it's important to clarify what we mean by by private debt. There's a lot of kind of terminology, just so we're all on the on the same page. So insurers usually look at things at a more granular level of detail. So they will say private debt, well, what could that constitute? So real estate debt, infrastructure debt, and then private credit. And private credit is the area that we're we're focusing on uh, during today's discussion. And even that asset class is evolving um, over the the, the current uh, past few few months, where typically it's been mid-market, sub-investment grade direct lending, and now there's an emerging investment grade. Um, private credits um, space that a number of asset managers are basically um, allocating loans to to individual um, borrowers. So in terms of what I'm seeing insurers doing, it really depends in terms of have they already got an allocation to private markets? So do they hold real estate debt or infrastructure debt or infrastructure equity? And now they're considering private credit as a diversifier away from, from those risk exposures uh, as and as an alternative then to high yields or to bank loans um, as well. And then it also then depends in terms of, are they a life insurer, are they a non-life insurer? Because the nature of the liabilities is completely different. So for a non-life insurer with kind of much shorter-dated liabilities, private credit is very much an asset class that kind of ticks a lot of boxes from a growth asset perspective as an alternative, for example, to to, to equities, given where equity valuations are at the moment. And the other context then is, is the insurer an internal model firm or a standard formula? internal model firms a lot more complexity then in terms of modeling the underlying asset class the risks there's data issues etc while standard formula effectively the, the loans are treated as unrated so it's a lot more simplified in terms of understanding what the capital consumption is weighing that up then with okay as tamsin uh, covered off in terms of what are the risk adjusted returns available from uh, private credit uh
1: very helpful Niall. thank you very much and Tamson, to turn back to you um, let's go back to the attractiveness of private credit in this in this environment you know we we talked a little bit about government bonds and corporate bonds uh as niall just mentioned perhaps a a better benchmark is you know the high yield space or the leveraged loan space um last as of last week at least the european high yield um, index that that we track, uh, the ICE Bank of America Euro High Yield Index was yielding around seven point three percent, and if you turn to you know sort of a a U.S. leverage loan index, um, you're up to around nine and a half percent or thereabouts. So can you can you talk about the way that the all-in yield for private credit stacks up vis-a-vis these liquid opportunities that uh, investors uh, have in the marketplace currently.
0: Yeah, sure. And I, I think it's quite a common challenge from investors at the moment. You know, if you could get, as you've highlighted, X percent on the, on the listed market, why really bother with the additional, I guess, complexity or effort that comes with private markets? Um, and I think there's a few sort of things i probably say in response to that. Uh, and I think firstly, it's got it's got to be about the illiquidity premium. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate about there is, you know, what is the size of the illiquidity premium? You know, what does that look like? Um, but we actually took quite a, undertook quite a substantial exercise to harvest the data on around 5000 anonymized uh, senior loans within the middle market direct lending space. Um, plotted that or the all in spread. So, you know, at point of entry on a graph against data from the Broadly Syndicated Loans Index, uh, going back more than a decade. Uh, And what we saw was you are actually getting a pretty consistent illiquidity premium of at least 3% or more uh, on the sort of direct lending middle market loans. Um, So that's the first point. And then I think secondly, when you compare default and loss rates across direct lending versus broadly syndicated loans or high yield, uh, you know, the story is also quite compelling there. Uh, So direct lending has historically had an average annual loss rate of around 0.9%. I think this is according to a a Moody study, which went back uh, quite a few decades. Uh, And that's comparing that to bank loans, where it's around 2%. So, you know, that's more than twice as high. If you're looking at high yield, uh, it comes out around 2.7%. So you're you're almost getting to, you know, three times as high um, a rate there uh, compared to direct lending. And that's in part due to the high recovery rates that that you see in direct lending in the event of default, Um, but also some of the structural protections you have by way of covenant, seniority in the capital structure, uh, asset security. Um, But I think also the fact that you do have the ability to get around the table with uh, the sponsors, private equity sponsors, uh, to try and find a solution before things uh, really do get too bad. So that's sort of, you know, very helpful within the direct lending context. Um, so that's a rather long-winded way of saying. I think it's absolutely worth the trouble uh, dipping into the private markets world when you compare it to to its listed counterparts um, of a similar sort of risk risk uh, equivalent, if you like.
1: Yeah. So to to summarize, um, similar or less risk, um, higher yield. There truly is a, a an illiquidity. Uh, there's no free lunch, <laughs> but there, there truly is an illiquidity premium. Yes. that investors uh can be can harness if they can handle the the lack of liquidity uh, that is you know is 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 part and parcel of this marketplace exactly so and to stay on that topic nile in terms of some of the challenges that insurance companies may have when it comes to investing in in private credits i mean we 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 do know that Insurance company teams are stretched. And to go back to the Mercer insurance survey from 2022, 63% of the respondents said that they had a lack of internal expertise that was limiting their ability to invest in private markets. Uh, so could you elaborate on that, Nile, in terms of what you're seeing in the market? What are some of the challenges insurance companies are facing when it comes to investing in private credit and how are they how are they addressing those challenges
2: yeah i think the introduction of solvency too particularly the prudent person principle really raised the bar in terms of insurers having to demonstrate that they understand all of the risks within their investment portfolio and that's very kind of pertinent when we start exploring then a private market asset classes like 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 private credit So insurers need to be able to to measure to manage to monitor to control and report on, on all of those risks uh, at different levels through the organisation. So, for example, the chief investment officer would need to have a different level uh, of knowledge compared to a board member or to a non-executive director, um, for, for example. And the amount of the investment, so right-sizing your investment is really important um, in, in terms of being proportionate uh, with um, the amount of effort that you need to undertake before you before you invest and one of the concerns, and it's kind of um, in the in the public domain, in terms of over the past week or so, the FCA and the UK regulator is doing a review on private market valuations. So valuations in private markets, as one would expect, they're they're lagged compared to public markets. Uh, they're not as timely. And then also, then in terms of regulators and other um, stakeholders, are basically. Um, Enforcing insurers to understand that they really do understand the, the methodologies in terms of the valuation approaches that their asset managers are taking and um, for valuing their, their their investments and kind of tied in with that then in terms of um, understanding risks can be then so these these loans are typically they're, they're unrated loans so they're not rated by a credit rating agency, but your asset manager should be determining their own kind of internal rating. So that you can understand then in terms of the loans that are being made, are they kind of sub-investment grade equivalent? Are they sub-investment grade? Are you getting compensated, to Tamsin's point, in terms of the spread or the illiquidity premium? Are you getting compensated for the actual risk that you're taking, allowing for the backing collateral and and the covenants? So there are kind of some of the the, the key issues. There's the changes then in terms of kind of solvency to reforms that are coming through. Um, From the UK perspective, there's the reforms to the matching adjustments. And also then there's the OPAS reforms that will be coming through as well, where there's potentially going to be less uh, restrictions in terms of the uh, eligibility criteria for investing in certain asset classes. And that's not to mention then the current hot topic of ESG, ESG and private markets. As Tamsin mentioned, um, you're basically doing bilateral loans. So you're speaking directly to the borrower. So in terms of getting the appropriate ESG data and reporting on that is another hot topic, as well as reporting more generally. So whether that's Solvency 2 reporting, investment reporting, risk reporting, ESG reporting, different forms of, of reporting, which insurers, investment committees and boards and risk committees are all focusing on in terms of really understanding, well, what are the risks that we're actually taking, particularly when we move into kind of new kind of more private market type asset classes, such as private credit.
1: Yes, and Niall, and that's that's even before you get to implementation considerations. So you decided you want to invest. How are you going to invest? And tell us a little bit more about that, Niall.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, David. So when you've done your strategy, you've determined, okay, what's the materiality of your investment? Then it's, okay, well, how are we going to actually get our our capital into the the new investments? And that's where typically their smaller insurer would invest in kind of co-mingled pooled funds. And then the large insurers then would use segregated mandates. But depending on the, the size of the investment, as a large insurer, they also use pooled mandates because you're not necessarily going to go out to the market and run two manager selections and go through the, the hassle of setting up two segregated mandates. So, so that's where uh, the large insurers also use kind of pooled, pooled funds. And that's to get kind of diversification as well uh, at a kind of a, a faster a faster pace. And also, then, in terms of diversifying your your alpha risk, in terms of not betting um, all of your all of your eggs on on one particular manager, it might be a different geography, a different style of manager w- w- within private credit, or they might have different, we'll say, credit ser- uh, selection or underwriting kind of capabilities or certain kind of subsectors. So they're all kind of key and um, important parts that that need to be kind of uh, borne in mind um, when effectively then implementing. And Tamsin, I think you had a a particular point that you wanted to cover in terms of that, the the whole point about diversification in terms of some
0: uh, illustrative examples. Yeah, exactly. I I actually think there is no other asset class out there where diversification is as integral to your return outcomes as it is in private debt. Uh, And and actually we did do some analysis on this. Um, So, you know, if you're looking at a portfolio of around sort of 35 to 40 individual credits, where say your largest position size is is sort of mainly maybe five to 6%, it's going to be considerably harder to hit still hit your return target. If you lose maybe one or two of those positions, um, where as opposed to if you have a portfolio of say 300 or 400 individual line items or or, or loans where your largest position is going to be much smaller perhaps 0.5 percent of your overall portfolio you know it's much less harmful if you if you lose maybe your top two or three positions and I know this is all sort of fairly logical um, from a concentration perspective but I think it really is important to get that diversification in there uh, and now you mentioned sort of different return streams uh, and we certainly like to b- build portfolios not sort of just purely direct lending, but maybe adding in some sort of specialty finance around the edge or asset-based finance. So, you know, you mentioned real estate lending or or infrastructure lending earlier, but something to really complement, you know, corporate uh, direct lending exposure. Uh, It's absolutely key.
1: And maybe to round off, Tamzin, on one of the operational points that Niall mentioned around ESG, it's hard to have any conversation with any any client these days without talking about ESG, how is ESG manifesting itself in the private credit marketplace?
0: Yeah, absolutely. A very, very hot topic. Um, I think that the private debt space, really, GPs have come up the curve very, very quickly. You know, you're no longer hearing managers saying, oh, it's just something to leave to the shareholders. You know, we're not owners of the company. We don't have any clout to enforce any change. Um, really, what you're seeing now is GPs taking a much more proactive approach both through dialogue with sponsors and borrowers and even through to actually implementing financial incentives uh, such as ESG margin ratchets uh, in order to sort of induce that change.
1: That's that's great. I'm glad to hear that 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 is uh, an increasing trend in the the private credit space. Um, We're out of time to wrap up. um, I, I think what we have observed in the marketplace are insurance companies saying that they were planning to increase their allocations to private credit. Um, They they are doing that, (laughs) uh, despite the fact that there are some challenges, uh, operational challenges, uh, and implementation challenges, but that insurance companies are still in the current environment, despite the fact that Um, They can invest in government bonds um, and and get a much more meaningful yield than they were able to nine months ago, that insurance companies are still inexorably increasing allocations to, to private credit. And to that end, uh, if you like what you heard today, um, please subscribe for more. And if you would like to discuss anything relating to this podcast, how Mercer is interacting with insurance companies and asset managers on the suitability of the asset class for the insurance community, please don't hesitate to reach out to your local Mercer representative or email us at Mercer.com. Thank you, Tamson. thank you, Niall, and thank you for listening.